Hello, this is Tim Conboy, the pastor of New Life Community Church located in Nashville, Indiana. I'd like to thank you for visiting our podcast, and I trust that God will just bless you and encourage you and speak to your heart as you listen to this message. Thank you again for joining us, and God bless you. Acts chapter 3, I invite you to turn there with me. Actually, you can go anywhere you want, but we're going to be in Acts chapter 3. Man, this was an exciting day for this guy that we're going to read about here in Acts 3. The message is a leap of faith, and you'll see what I'm talking about as we read on. So I invite you to follow with me as we pick it up in verse 1. This is Luke writing to his friend, and he writes, One day Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. Now, you always make special note, when God gives a specific time, it's for a reason, and we'll see that. Now, a man crippled from birth, gives us a time frame, gives us his condition and his time frame, was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those who were going into the temple courts. By the way, Since the day of Pentecost, how many were going into the temple courts that were believers? At least 3,000 a day. Remember, we just got done reading. I know. You say, that was a week ago. We can't remember your sermons that far back. But 3,000 got saved, and and that 3,000 would meet, and they'd gather at the temple court first, and then they would disperse out to the houses. So, So these Christians were still in the habit of going to meet each other there. So it was at the gate, going to the temple court, where thousands of new believers are going to be going, that this man was laid. Now, when he, meaning the crippled, saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for what? Money. So this is what I need. I need money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. So both of them together. Then Peter said, "Look at us!" Exclamation point. Interesting. That, that's a that is a direct command. Is how it's stated. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. So this is why he gave the attention, and while he gave it, he was expecting to receive something in return. Then Peter said as every preacher does, silver and gold I do not have. Actually, not every preacher says that. But what I have, I give unto you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet, began to walk, and then he went with them into the temple courts. And I love this part, walking and jumping. There's this guy just jumping. I see like this gazelle just jumping through the cords. I'm like, what is this guy doing? Walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple. In other words, I love that, past tense. Sat begging at the temple called Beautiful, the temple gate. And they were filled with wonder and amazement in what had happened to him. Father, we ask your blessing, and we invite you right now to just come and meet with us. Speak into our hearts. Speak into our lives. And Father, maybe we're not like this man where we are crippled physically. 
But maybe there are other things in our lives that are broken. Other things, whether it's financial, whether it's relationships, whether it's work, whether whatever it may be, maybe it's physical or psychological. Lord, there are things in our lives where we limp through life. And we need you to intervene. We need you to touch us. We need you to work in our midst. So, Lord, right now, whether we're here or listening over the Internet, wherever we might be, Lord, speak to us. Speak to us about your healing power. Speak to us about your great love to us. And, Father, help us to draw near unto you. And, Lord, you said if we will draw near unto you, you will draw near unto us. So, Lord, hide me behind the cross. Preach through me, Lord, and preach to me, I ask. And I pray these things believing in Jesus' holy and powerful name. And all God's people said, Amen and Amen. A leap of faith. As I said, what what an exciting day. I mean, think about it. This guy had no idea what this day was going to lead into. He had no idea what was going to happen that day. He went to this uh, gate just like he had all the previous days. But this day, his life was transformed. It was transformed physically as we obviously see, but it was also transformed spiritually. You'll see now, you'll see him praising God. Now he's giving glory to God. Now he goes, he doesn't get healed and walk away from the disciples. Now he joins with the believers, goes into the house of God, into the temple courts, and joins with them in worship to God. So this guy's life was transformed. And I want to tell you something. If this were you or I, we would not stop talking about it. We would not ever be tired of talking about it. Amen? If we, if this was us who was healed, man, we'd be glad. Let me tell you what God did. They wouldn't have to, you know, prod it out of us. They wouldn't have to force us to say, come on, man, tell us that story again. Man, we'd be happy to tell it, wouldn't we? This guy had a testimony of God's healing power. He had a testimony of a divine appointment that he had that he had no idea that he had that divine appointment. You see, friends, we have no idea when when or where we're going to run into God, right? But he knows, and he intersected this man's life and changed it forever. As we look at this man, I want to think of a couple things first of all. Think with me about this man's condition. The Scripture says in verse 2, it simply says that this man was crippled. He was lame. Now, Luke, the author of the the book of Acts, uh, Luke was a doctor. He's known as Dr. Luke. He was a physician. And it's interesting, the words that he uses to describe even this condition in verse 7, uh, the, the word in the Greek is syphdron, S-P-H-Y, which is hard to say, D-R-O-N. And these are medical terms. As a matter of fact, listen to this one commentary. It says, perhaps only medical men can fully appreciate the meaning of these words. They are peculiar technical terms of a medical man. The word translated feet is only used by Luke and occurs nowhere else in the scripture. So the words he's using are only found right here. And then it says this indicates his discrimination between the different parts of the human heel. In other words, he's specifically talking about this one part of this man's body. The phrase ankle or ankle bones, again, is a medical phrase to be found nowhere else in the scripture. Only right here. The word leaping up or to leap describes the coming suddenly into socket of something that was out of place, an articulation of a joint. 
This then is a very careful medical description of what happened in connection to this man. So in other words, when God's Spirit inspired the Word of God and inspired Luke to write about this man, God specifically used words to describe his condition. Matter of fact, so specific, they're found nowhere else in the Scripture. And he describes the, this man's uh, feet and his ankle joint there. And it wasn't just one foot. It was both of them. So this man, we read, he was crippled. But it wasn't like he had a hip displacement. It wasn't like he had uh, knee problems. The scripture was very specific. He said, no, both feet and both ankles were disjointed, disformed, and he was unable to walk. He could not even like get up on a crutch if his legs were crooked and walk. He couldn't even get vertical. And you can imagine uh, even the muscles in his legs and, and how thin his legs must have been. So when we look at this man's condition, we see uh, that, that he was deformed uh, from birth, the Scripture says. He was crippled. Uh, there was something going on in that joint, in that ankle joint, uh, that could only be described in medical terms. And isn't it amazing that God used terms because he knew specifically inside, underneath that skin, exactly how that, what was wrong and the disjointing of those, those joints. By the way, if you're an engineer, I know we have many. You know, the engineers find it very difficult to, uh, the ones that are making robotics and things of that nature, very difficult to make a wrist or an ankle joint. It's very difficult to get robots to walk or to have their, their hand articulate and move like our hand does. I mean, God can do it out of, out of cells connected and bones and, and tissues and tendons. And, and yet our hand could do things that all these decades have been trying to get robots to be able to do, and they can't do it. Amen? You ever seen a robot hitchhiking? No. See? Well, we can do that, right? <laughs> got to make sure you're awake out there. You still got you. So God designed this man's body in such a way that he knew exactly what the problem was. As a matter of fact, his condition said in verse 2 that every day he was crippled from birth, but he was carried every day to the gate called Beautiful where they put him there to beg. Now, every day this man had to be carried to that gate called Beautiful. You know, my tendency is to first just look at this man and look at this miracle and, and look at everything that's happened. But you know what? One thing the Lord impressed on my mind is behind every miracle, behind every situation, there are other people that are playing roles that we often overlook. Do you realize that every day somebody had to carry this man? Every day someone had to go, whether family or friends, and lift him up in his crippled condition, and carry him across the city, down the street, up the stairs, over to the gate, and lay him down. And then they would have to go to the end of the day and pick him back up and carry him all the ways back home. Every single day, somebody did that. You know, it reminded me when I read this, there's a, uh, a gentleman I met in Togo. It's hard for you to see him. He's, you know, he's got a light-colored outfit on. Uh, but this this is a very elderly, frail gentleman. He's got Parkinson's disease. And when I was in uh, West Africa, in Togo, I was with a medical team, and I was one of the evangelists that were there sharing the gospel with folks and praying for healing and, and just seeing God work in marvelous ways. Well, this man was brought into the clinic by this next man right here, this gentleman. 
And this man carried him in, brought him into the clinic, and set him down. Well, I first thought that this guy was the son of the older gentleman. But as we got talking, we kind of find out that this man is the neighbor to the older man. And this man happens to be a believer. And this man said, you know what? We need to get you down to see these doctors, to have these Christians pray for you. And so he carried the other man. But he didn't carry him a half mile down the street. He carried him, according to translators, we're talking to him, he carried him over, well over 10 miles to get there. And then he turned around and carried him all the way back the same day. He said he got up early that morning before the sun even got up, and he picked him up, put him onto his back, and carried him. Could you imagine carrying somebody from here to Columbus? Can you imagine carrying someone, no matter how frail they are, to carry them for 10 miles and then turn around and carry them back without complaining? Without complaining. You talk about compassion. You, you talk about uh, love your neighbor as yourself. Not just this man, but someone in the Scripture. Someone here had to show the compassion to this crippled man to every day. Twice a day, take him to the temple. Every day, bring him and set him back down. Every day, come lift him back up and carry him back home. Every single day, the scripture says. Matter of fact, it said it more than once that he was every day at that temple. Well, so when I look at this, you and I, we may not know the name of the man or woman or person that did this. But I'll guarantee you one thing. God knows exactly who did it. I don't know that, that guy's name. I got his picture, but I don't remember his name. God knows his name. God knows his name. And God never forgets our labor of love, he says. For God is not unrighteous to forget your labor of love, which you've shown towards the brethren as you minister in his name. Hebrews 6.10 tells us. God says, I know. And so I, I just give a shout out to you caregivers. I give a shout out to you who say, you know what? I labor day in and day out. I lift them up. I move them. I set them down. Every single day I do this. And there's no recognition. There's no names recorded in the scripture of it. But I want you to know God sees and God knows. And only God is able to reward as God can do it. God can do it. And I said, man, that is so much like God. The one who carried this crippled there. That's a God thing. God Does not God carry us even when we can't walk? Does, is not God's Spirit the one who lifts us up when we feel like just being wiped out and say, I can't go any further? Is it not like God to just say, come on, it's just another day. We'll be all right. You'll make it. That's how God rolls. And this is exactly how this person did in this scripture. So when I look here, first thing I noticed here was the, the compassion. The act of compassion from someone we never even hear about in the Scripture. And so if that's you, I want to say, Amen. Thank you. How, how put out do we get sometimes, even if someone wants to so drive them to a doctor's appointment at Columbus? They're like, oh man, i got to drive all the way over there. It's going to take me 20 minutes there, 20 minutes back. And Can you imagine carrying the person over? So I think next time we should think of this guy and say, you know what, as long as I don't have to carry you, I'm good with it. Right? <laughs> I'm good with it. We see this, this man. His condition, by the way, according to chapter 4, verse 22, 
He has been in this crippled condition for over 40 years. He wasn't a teenager. He wasn't in his early 20s or 30s. Scripture says in the next chapter, verse 22, for over 40 years old was this man. So in other words, he was crippled as a baby since birth, it says. He was crippled as a boy. He was crippled as a man. All this man has ever known is being in a crippled state ever since he was born to this very day in Scripture. He is always for one, two, three, over four decades. Year after year after year has passed by. More than 15,000 days have gone by, and he still has been in the same condition. And what amazes me is when I read this, how quickly I just read through the narrative and how, much, how slowly when the Lord, when I started looking up the words, the Lord slows me down and says, wait a minute, I want you to see something here. I want you to see a word he uses two times. It's the word beautiful. Because this crippled man, withered up, was laid at a temple, in the temple courtyard, at a gate called beautiful. Now, there's a couple striking, interesting things about it. First of all, the gate is not described as beautiful. The gate is called beautiful. In other words, it's, this is speaking about the eastern gate, and he says, take it over to the beautiful gate. Not as in description, as in name. Are you with me on that? So, here they, they see this gate, and it's a 40-foot high gate made of brass. It's, it's a beautiful thing to look at, especially with the light glittering off it. But they look at this gate, and, and they don't just describe it as beautiful. They always call it beautiful. They, if you said the beautiful gate, they wouldn't get it mixed up with the other gates. They'd say, oh, I know which one you're talking about. A gate that was made by the hands of man, and yet their assessment of that is that it was a beautiful thing. So much so that they called it that. Now here's the amazing part of this word beauty. The word beautiful here is the word horeios. H-O-R-I-H-O-R-A-I-O-S. Well, you think it's hard to spell in English. You try spelling it out in Greek to, you know, transliterate it. Horeios. H-O-R-A-I-O-S. Now, when I saw that, I said, oh, I know what that, I, why even look it up? I know what beautiful means, right? It, it is something that's lovely, something that's pleasant to look at. We, we understand what it means. But then when I looked the word up, you know, you know what this word means? It means the bloom and the vigor of life. The bloom and the vigor of life. This word means the grace of movement and the symmetry of form. Think of that. The bloom and the vigor, the vitality, the energy of life, but the word encapsulates, it means the grace of movement. It wasn't how big it was swinging on its hinges. I don't know. The grace of movement and the symmetry of form. In other words, the, the form of it was perfect and it worked together and it was an amazing thing to behold. Now think of that. Twice this word is given to us in the text. The gate called beautiful. So here's something man-made and they say, man, look at the, the, the grace of movement. Look at the symmetry of form. Uh, look, at, look at this, this uh, bloom and vigor of life. 
But I'm here to tell you something, friends. It was not the thing that man made that contains the vigor of life. It's the very one that God made, the crippled, that contains the vigor of life. When we look at the two of them, we say, this is beautiful. And we say this, well, this is a heartbreak. This is, this is terrible. To see this man crippled for over 40 years. Our assessment, friends, is different than God's assessment. Because God doesn't consider this gate made by the hands of man the beautiful bloom and vigor of life. God considers this man made by the hands of God the beautiful vigor of life. Grace in movement, even though it looks broken. Grace in movement and symmetry in form, even though it looks broken. I am reminded that God says that all of us, including this man, was fearfully and wonderfully made. He didn't come out a mistake. He didn't come out an oops, I I didn't do that right. He didn't come out as a second thought and say, man, I should have done it different. No, every single one of us, every one of us, are wonderfully formed and created by the hands of God. No matter what condition we look, no matter where we're at, no matter what maladies we might face, We are formed by the hand of God. And it's not about what you and I see with our eyes. It's not about how you and I assess it with our heart and our understanding. It's about what God sees with His eyes. It's about how God assesses it with His heart and His understanding. You see, when they look at these, they say, man, what a contrast. I would have missed it just breezing through it. But he says, really, Tim, Is it the gate that is grace and movement? Is it the gate that is symmetry and form? Or is it this man? You want to see grace moving, you're about to see it. (laughs) You want to see symmetry and form, you're about to see it. You want to see bloom and vigor and vitality in life, he says, you're about to see it. Matter of fact, it's the very book of Acts, chapter 17, verse 28. It says that in him, in Jesus... We live and move and have our being. You see, everything we have, everything there is to life is all found in Jesus Christ and it's in Jesus that you and I have everything pertaining to life. We live and we move because of Jesus Christ. That's grace and movement. You got up this morning. I got up this morning. We breathe. We inhale. We exhale. We move their body. You know, being vertical is a great thing sometimes. Amen? We got up, we, we, we got ourselves ready, we made our breakfast. Boy, I'm so glad when my wife gets home. This whole eating thing, I've been trying to, I just look and said, eh, I guess I can eat that. I made a hot dog omelet this morning. <laughs> Mistake. Two hot dogs and oh, hot dogs, eggs, it's all food, it could, it'll work. Yeah, some things don't go together. <laughs> Stay away from the hot dog omelets, right? <laughs> Serious. But you know, the fact that we, we have life is a great act of God's mercy and grace to you and I. What a wonderful act of mercy He shows to the unbeliever. Amen? He allows them to live another day 
and another day and another day. Even the ones that blaspheme, even the ones that curse them, even the ones that kick them out of the courts and kick them out of the schools, even the ones that shake their fists, even the ones that do everything against the nature of God. And yet God loves them enough to give them grace to live another day and mercy to live another day. That's why he says, fret not yourself because of the wicked man who prospers in his way. In other words, don't wring your hands because he goes, you know what, that's an act of mercy. That's me being merciful to them and giving them another day. So when it comes to life and it comes to this contrast, you and I, sometimes we we get mixed up and we see the gate is beautiful and, and not the crippled is beautiful. God sees the crippled man is beautiful and we need to see it as well. It's not what we do that's beautiful. It's what God does that's beautiful. Amen? And he makes all things beautiful in his time, Ecclesiastes tells us. We learned another thing here concerning his condition. We learned that he had been begging this day. He started that morning and had gone through the morning hours and gone into the afternoon hours. As a matter of fact, the scripture says that he was begging right up till three o'clock in the afternoon. What happened, what took place, his healing uh, took place at three o'clock in the afternoon. Now, God bless you. Now, you wonder, why does God say that? And why were Peter and John going to the temple at three o'clock in the afternoon? Why didn't they go there at noon? Why wasn't it one o'clock? Why not two o'clock? I'm glad you asked. Because there's a very specific reason. You see, at 3 o'clock in the afternoon is what's called a mincha. M-I-N-C-H-A-H. Mincha. The mincha is prayers of gift offering. It's when Israel would gather in the temple and they would thank God for the sacrifice that they just had offered. You see, prior to 3 o'clock in the afternoon, the afternoon sacrifices were being offered. Once the sacrifice was offered, then at 3 o'clock, prayers were offered. So interesting, Peter and John do not go to the temple early for the sacrifice. Why? Because there's already been a sacrifice, and that's Jesus Christ. He already is the Lamb of God that died for the sins of the world. They don't go for the sacrifice. They go for the prayer time. They go for the prayer meeting. They go to thank God for the sacrifice that was offered on the cross of Calvary. And by the way, that's why Jesus, Scripture says it was 3 o'clock in the afternoon, that Jesus utters his last words, and he says, he offers up a prayer and says, it is what? Finished. It is finished. And his last prayer right at the Mincha, the gift offering was a prayer to say, man's sin is paid. I will bear all their sin. I will bear all their iniquity. I will bear all their diseases. I will bear all their afflictions. I will bear all their burdens on me. And my prayer to you, God, at 3 o'clock, Jesus said, it's done. And at 3 o'clock, he gave up the ghost. He gave up his spirit and went to be with Christ. So when we look at this, we realize that th- that this is not just happenstance. It happened to be 3 o'clock in the afternoon. This was not just happenstance. It happened to be at a gate that's in total contrast to this crippled. These were all orchestrated and designed by God, and it was a divine appointment that this man had that God was going to intersect him with his son, Jesus Christ. And by the way, you know, when we look at this man's condition, Humanly speaking, we see the contrast and the symbolism. We see the timing. But you know what? Humanly speaking, this man was in a hopeless condition, a helpless condition. This man was in a dependent and debilitated position. His condition, as far as we would say, he said he is permanently disabled. 
He is permanently uh, debilitated because he is crippled. But conditions like this, friends, is when we have conditions that are this horrific in our life, that these conditions end up becoming the enemy of hope. You see, it's under these conditions that the door swings wide open for the spirit of despair to come into your heart and my heart. When you and I are going through something, sometimes day after day, week after week, year after year, decade after decade. When there is a persistent problem in your life and my life, be it physical, be it financial, be it relationship, whatever it might be. When it is a persistent problem, it becomes the enemy of our hope. And the door swings wide and the spirit of despair and discouragement wants to enter in. And what happens is, all of a sudden, all hope is gone. I'm this way. I was born, excuse me, I was born crippled. I was a crippled boy and a crippled man, and I will always be this way. And what happens is, we resign ourselves to the circumstance that we're in. And we say, you know what? This is how it is. We become our own martyr. And we say, well, I gotta take up my cross and bear it. Just trudge along, grab yourself by the bootstraps. You know, we hear it and we say it so many times to others. Do you realize that? How many times we say it to our kids? You know, just just plow through it. And you know what? Sometimes we plow through life. I mean, life has its difficulties, right? You guys have difficulties? I don't know. I know I do. It has its difficulties. But persistent difficulties, persistent problems, persistent turmoil, when you are constantly bombarded with it to the point that you are broken, oftentimes your hope is gone. And we get broken emotionally, physically, spiritually, financially, relationships, you name it. But the question is, what happens at those times? Do you Lower your expectation and just say, well, this is normal life now. Guess I deal with it. Or do you keep your expectation and say, Lord, you've got to give me hope here. (laughs) You've got got to help me out because, man, I am getting so discouraged here. And remember, discourage. Discourage is the absence of courage. The answer to discourage isn't more faith. The absence to discourage or the answer to discourage is courage. Courage. Right? Remember the lion? Courage is what you need, right? <laughs> Discourage. It means courage is gone. And when you and I get through life sometimes, guess what? We lose our courage. And fear sets in, and hope is gone, and we say there's no help. As a matter of fact, this guy, this gentleman, this crippled man, he was at this point where conditions had him this way for 40 years, and then we see him go from his condition, but we see him offer up a cry, verse 3. You see, this man saw Peter and John entering into the temple. He saw them going in, and when he saw them, verse 3, we're told that he called out, he asked out, it means to cry with a soft voice. He called out to Peter and John, and he asked them for what? Money. You see, this man, he said, you know, the solution to my problem, what I need is some financial help. What I need is some money. 
He cried out to people passing to meet his surface needs, which really weren't his real needs. His needs were far deeper than money. But he says, but in my eyes, this, this is all I need. If I just had a little more money, I'd get through another day. And then tomorrow, I'll be here for a little more money. What's interesting is that Peter and John, the scripture says, they were entering into the court. This man saw them, called out to them, and it says Peter and John both fixed their eyes on him. The, the inference is that they were not looking at him at first. They, they were going one way. They then turned and looked at the man. And then Peter said to this man in verse 5, he said, look at us. Think of that. The man saw Peter and John. They were not looking at him. He cries out for help. They then turn, fix their eyes on him, but he's not looking at them. Are you with me on this? And Peter and John say, hey, look at us. You see, the cast down eyes is a position of despair, brokenness. Came and look at these guys. Humility. Let me give you a very general observation. I have seen people Beggars in need in many, many countries. I've seen them in South America. I've seen them through Europe, seen them in Africa. I've been in 30-some countries. And, and every country I've been in, there's people that are poor and in need. But what I, one thing I have observed, that beggars who are poor because they are lazy or have substance abuse have no problem making eye contact. You ever notice that? They have no problem making eye contact with you. And it's interesting that Peter and John were not making eye contact with him because they were broke for one thing, right? And they were going somewhere for another. Listen, when, you, when you're going somewhere and you're broke, you know, we get accosted at times, you know, hey, hey, can you spare a dime? You can spare a quarter? I, I think it's up to a buck fifty now, whatever you're sparing. I take credit card. Like, what? And you're like, hey, I'm broke. And they're like, yeah, right, sure you are. I'll tell you, actually, nowadays, very, carry very little cash, you know. But, but the point is that the, we don't want to make eye contact with them. But the ones that are poor, due to laziness or substance abuse, they want to make eye contact with you. And matter of fact, I, I had this, uh, here's an example of a guy. It's a homeless Jedi, in case you're wondering. And that's the uh, devil horn sign that he's given. It's not for the Texas Longhorns. But this guy is so many, they, they want to come right up to you. They want you to look at them, and they want to look at you. They want to put a guilt trip on you to say, well, all right, buddy, here's, here's some money, you know, whatever, go your way. And, and they want that eye contact. But you know what I found? That people who are genuinely in need, that are genuinely broken, they're... They're humble. They're broken. They, they're, they have an air about them that is not an air of entitlement. They have an air about them that, that says, man, I, you know, if you could do anything to help me. And oftentimes, they don't even look at you. Matter of fact, you know, I, I see this, this person, this beggar, and they just have a little pan right there. And you can see just by looking at them, this isn't some homeless Jedi. This is a person that has a genuine need in their life. And I tell you, there's many, many times, many countries I've been to. And of all the places I've been, 
I have not seen the will work for food lie, I mean, sign. I've not seen that in other countries. But I have seen people really broken and really crippled. As a matter of fact, in some countries, especially in Africa, when the child is born, the mother will cripple the child purposely so that the child would become a beggar. It's a form of occupation. For the alms, especially amongst the Muslim people, giving alms to the poor is one of their pillars. And so you couldn't, I couldn't imagine a mother even doing that to a child. And yet here they, here they lie on the sidewalk. Here they lie in their pillow or their blanket. And, you know, and what we have in our country doesn't compare to what the people in other countries are going through. But when I think of this and I think of this beggar, I realize that the most compassionate person in the whole wide world has a solution to people, poor people, in both problems. God's solution to those that are poor due to laziness that is within their control, God's solution to them is get a job and get to work. As a matter of fact, the most compassionate person out there inspired his word in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10. And he said this, For if any would not work, neither shall he eat. The God who knows all things knows how to motivate us, doesn't he? And he says, hunger is a good motivator. Amen? And there are those that, that God says, you are not poor due to the circumstances of life. You are poor because you are lazy and won't get out there and work. And God says, if you want help, get out there and get a job. That's what God says. You say, well, that's not very compassionate, God. He's the most compassionate person in the universe, is he not? But it's a shame that those are the ones that rob it for the ones that are in legitimate need. It's a shame that those who really do need our help, who really do need assistance, really do need a hand up, they, we often turn away from all of them because of those who abuse the system. We got to be careful. I got to be careful that I do not turn away from a legitimate need because there's others that are illegitimate needs. Are you with me on this? And there's nothing unchristian like by saying, no, sorry. Look, I don't know how many times we've offered work to the will work for food guys. They don't want to work. They want the money. And you got to hand it to at least the one that says, hey, I just need a beer. Okay, at least you're honest, right? At least he's honest. And trust me, there's plenty of signs like that you could have pulled up. But you know, for the one who is poor due to circumstances of life, sometimes it's an unexpected tragedy. Sometimes it's a loss of income. Sometimes it's an injury. Sometimes it's a disability. Something that is not due to laziness. That's a whole different category. God has no tolerance for that. But for those who are poor due to the circumstances of life, God says, He that pities the poor lends to the Lord. And the Lord, He, that which He gives, will be paid back. Proverbs nineteen seventeen. God says, they're the poor are with you always. Why do I leave them here? Why don't I just make everyone? Why don't I just do uh, wealth distribution? Make everyone at the same level, and there's no more poor. I got a newsflash: there will always be poor people due to the circumstance of life. Why? Because God designed it that way. God had it set up so that we could act like Him. We could be the one that carries them to the gate. We could be the one to show compassion. We can have an opportunity to show love to somebody that is unconditional. Why? Because that's how God works with you and I.
We who are spiritually bankrupt. We, we who have nothing to offer God. We who are poor through and through. God comes and he ministers to us. Not for what he can get out of it. Because what does God, the God of the universe, need out of us? Nothing. But God says, I leave the poor with you. He said, the poor with you always. Why? So that you can minister to them. And friends, I want to encourage you. And I want to encourage myself. Don't just turn a blind eye. Don't just turn a deaf ear. When someone has a legitimate need, say, Lord, how can I help them? How can I help? And, and you might be surprised how he may tell us and direct us to help them. So this man had a need, and he cries out to Peter and John, and he asks them for money. And Peter and John turned, and they said something that this man did not want to hear. Silver and gold have I none. I don't have any money. Now this guy first, he's like, oh, great. And then he came, and he said something like this. He obviously one of these Jesus freaks, because he says, but... What I do have, I give unto you, as I did give freely, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up, stand up. So here he says to this man, I don't have cash, but I do have Christ. I I don't have a coin, but I do have a cure. What do you want? Do you want a coin in your cup, or do you want a Christ with the cure? And it's interesting when you really stop to think about it. If, if he'd have put a coin in that man's cup, that man would have been satisfied. And he got his coin, he would have moved on and said, thank you, sir, and off he'd go. But the question was, what do you really want? And what do you really need? This guy was convinced that what he needed was just another coin. When God knew that what he needed was Christ to work in his life. You and I, friends, we are satisfied by things that we think we need. And yet we don't lift our expectations to trust God for the things that we really need. Not just a coin in a cup, but a Christ with the cure. That a Savior that's working, not simply on a fix to, this, to the symptom, but a cure for the problem. And, and we say, well, I, I don't know. I, I could trust God to help me get through and bear up under these symptoms. But friends, I want to say, can we trust God to, to cure the problem? Not just relieve the symptom. And you see, friends, we settle for far less from a God who wants to bless us with far more than we could ask or think. Let me say that again. We settle for far less from a God who wants to bless us with far more than we could ever even ask or think. In other words, God's working at this level with this man. He said, listen, John, sir, I want to work at this level. You want to come to me at this level. Now, if all you want is a coin, you'll have to wait for the next guy. But if you want to trust me to work at this level, which is beyond human level, well, then I'll work. And I'll come to your rescue. Let me tell you something, friends. God will take the issue, the problem, the the need. He will take it higher than human ability to meet that need. Because if it only stays at a human level, then we don't need a divine God. We just need another human being. But God says, no, your problem is far beyond man's ability. 
I, I raise the problem all the ways up to my ability, where it can only be not a natural thing, but a supernatural thing. This man was offered an opportunity. What do you want? A coin or a cure? Because silver and gold have I none. But what I do have, I will give to you. And when Peter extended his hand to the man, the man had a choice. In that instant, he had a choice. Am I going to say, ah, get lost? Or am I going to say, yeah, I want that. Yeah, I'll take that. Yeah, I'll rather have Jesus over the coin any day. I'd rather have Jesus over the, over the uh, silver and gold any day. And by the way, I wonder, when I look at this, I realize that often what we think we need is only a distraction to what we really need. What we think we need is God to fix this symptom. What we think we need is God to mend this relationship. What we think we need often becomes a distraction to what we really need. God wants to go deeper. He goes, no, this is what you really need. You need me to work all the ways in here on this situation. And when I looked at this, I wondered what this guy may have thought in that instant as he thought, do I take Christ? Do I take what this uh, religious guy is offering here, this believer? And as I read through this, you know what God impressed in my heart? That this guy may have had an attitude towards Jesus. Say, so how do you figure that? Again, I'm glad you asked. A couple quick questions. How long has this guy been crippled? 40 years. How often has he been put at the temple gates? Every day. How many in that area knew that this guy that they were looking at was the guy that was the beggar over at the gate? How many knew it was him? Everyone did, right? Last question. How long has it been since Jesus left? We know it's been more than 10 days. Maybe it's been two weeks. You see, the point is this. This man, for 40 years, or however many of those 40, he was laid at that gate every single day. And he's 40 years old, seven years older than Jesus was when he died. And every day he was at that gate. Let me ask you a question. Did Jesus ever go into the temple during his whole time of his life? Many, many times. Jesus went in that temple when he was 12 years old. And this man would be 19 years old laying at the gate. And Jesus would enter in uh, many, many times. Every time there's a Passover feast. Every time there was Pentecost. Every time Feast of Tabernacle. Every single feast, Jesus would be going in that temple. He would go right through this gate, right Past this man. And guess what? Jesus never healed him. And yet Jesus walked right past him. If you were the crippled sitting there, and you knew, I mean, there was a group of disciples with him. And you knew other people that are at the pool of Bethesda and so forth were getting healed and getting helped. And this blind man who was blind from birth, all of a sudden now he could see. And here's the one that was uh, the one that's done all these miracles in life, and every day he walked past you and never healed you. How do you think this would start feeling? <laughs> you know, as I read through this, I said, I never realized that part of it before. 
that Jesus passed him every single day. Now, from Jesus' perspective, every day he would go by him, he'd have a smile in his heart because he knew what he's going to do for this guy. Jesus knew, oh, yeah, yeah, man, I am going to heal you. Ooh, you're going to be leaping in these courtyards here soon. Oh, you're going to be so thrilled. Because of you, 5,000 people will be saved. Not only 3,000 got saved to preaching, right? 5,000 are going to be saved with this guy. Jesus knew exactly what his future held, and Jesus knew exactly what he was going to do for him. But what about from the man's perspective? And that man's perspective, and every time the healer kept going by, and every time he passed, and every time he was still crippled by the time Jesus left the temple, and every time he hear about everyone else getting healed, but he's not getting healed. You know what his perspective would be? Jesus doesn't care about me. He heals everyone else. He meets all their needs. Oh yeah, he can see again. Oh yeah, he took up his bed. Oh yeah, he doesn't have leprosy, but I'm still crippled at this gate. And he walks right past me every day. And he never, ever heals me. You see, friends, it's at these times when Jesus seems to pass by us and bless everyone else and meet everyone else's need and support everyone else and encourage everyone else and heal everyone else. And you sit there week after week after week and he passes right by you. It's at that time the devil whispers in your ear. He doesn't care about you. He doesn't care what you're going through. Oh yeah, you hear all that stuff, but pff, it's never going to happen to you. You see, friends, the devil will lie in our ear and tell us either God doesn't know about our condition or God doesn't care about our condition. And then we lose hope and we say, well, I guess I got to take up my cross and bear. We become our own little martyr. And we get in our little shell. And the devil's design is for us to leave Jesus out there, not put hope in him, not put faith in him, not look to him, just plug on through life. And, and uh, you know, it's how it is. But I want to tell you something, friends. Del delay is not denial. Delay is not denial. This man's healing was delayed and delayed and delayed and delayed and Jesus went off the scene and it looked hopeless. But his delay was not denial. It was not that Jesus was denying help to this man. It was not that Jesus was ignoring him. It was not that Jesus didn't care. Listen, God knows you. God loves you. God knows everything you're struggling with. He knows every burden you carry. He knows every heartache that squeezes that heart. He knows everything that keeps you up at night. He knows every fear that comes at you. He knows every cell in your body. He knows every disease that attacks you. He knows every crippled thing in your spiritual life and in your physical life. He knows it. And he wants you to know, don't stop believing me. Don't stop trusting in me. Don't stop expecting something from me. Because so many think that I don't care and I don't know and I'm going to pass on by you. I want you to know I do know. And in my right timing, I will intervene in your life in such a way 
that I will get the most glory and you will have the ultimate good. And the problem is, our time for that to happen was yesterday. And God says, just wait. Listen, when I see this man's condition, I hear his cry. The cure was so amazingly simple. When he says, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have I give unto you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Stand up. Rise up. A Christian is not bankrupt because he has no silver or gold. A Christian is bankrupt when he cannot say, in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. That's when we reach spiritual bankruptcy. You see, friends, the fact of the matter is, my job and your job is not to heal the person. That's God's job. And God will do His job in God's timing, and He'll do it His way, and it will be perfect when He does it. Amen? Our job is not to do the healing. Our job is to proclaim who the healer is, and it's our job to proclaim that by His stripes, we are healed. Amen? That's my job. I had someone say to me, well, you're praying for their healing, but what if they don't get healed? How can you make this proclamation and say, in the name of Jesus, stand up and walk? What if he doesn't get up and walk? Well, I got news for you. It's not my job to get him up and walk him. It's not my job to heal him. And therefore, I don't take the glory when someone is healed. And nor do I take the blame when someone is not healed. You see, this is a God thing. Why did God go and heal one man, one man, at the pool of Bethesda when all these others around needed healing? It's like going right into the hospital and healing one and then leaving. Why does he do that? I don't know why he does that. I'm not God. And I know one thing. I know two, well, I know two things. I know God's sovereign. Amen? <laughs> and I know that God will move when God is ready to move. That's all there's to it. He is a sovereign God, and I want to say this. Don't let any of us ever lay a guilt trip on someone else because they weren't healed. Or maybe they prayed for someone to get healed, and we say something like, well, you didn't have enough faith. Where in the world is it? Let me tell you something. Your faith is not what heals you. God is the one that heals you. God is the healer. You mustering up enough faith to heal yourself is not what heals you. God heals you. He can hear the, the voice of one that's raised up, or he can hear the whisper of a heart that cries so loud that the mouth can't even say it. He goes, I hear you. And I, let me tell you, this man, he didn't articulate any faith other than lifting his hand up and saying, all right, I'll take it. <laughs> Nothing's recorded of what he said up to the point of his healing. And yet, we have the audacity to put guilt trips on people sometimes and say, because you don't have enough faith, that's why God didn't heal you. <laughs> there was a gal this morning delivered from that lie. She had lost a little baby. And someone told her, that is because she didn't have enough faith that that baby died. Yeah. If she carried that burden all these years, 
until this morning. And I tear up thinking about seeing her. And the tears run down her face. And she said, for all these years, I've been carrying the burden thinking that my lack of faith is why my baby died because this godly person told me this. And they lived up north, one here. And I believed it. And I said, well, you believe something that wasn't true. God is a sovereign God. And let none of us put on any other one of us or on ourselves this sovereignty that only God possesses. He moves when he wants to move. He moves the way he wants to move. And he moves when the timing will bring him the most glory and us the most good. And by the way, every single one of us who have faith in Jesus Christ will ultimately be healed. Amen? We will have our permanent healing. Everything this side is temporary. Everything's temporary. So when it came to this man and it comes to you and I, what do you need? What do you need? Have you lowered your expectations so far that you just take the coin in the cup? Or do you need to get those expectations back up and say, you know what? I need to trust God for healing. Healing in my body. Healing in my marriage. Healing in our relationships. I need to trust God for help in my work, in my finances, in in my spiritual walk. I need to trust God in my psychological uh, attacks that keep coming at me. I need to trust God that God is able to do above that which I could ask or think. Have you given up on God? Has he passed you one too many times and you said, not going to happen. As we close right now, I'm just going to invite you to stand with me. Let's stand together. I'm going to ask the elders if they'd come. There's some elders here. There were quite a bit in the first service. Their ministry team comes. Maybe you have a need today. Listen, this isn't some emotional appeal. This is an appeal to say, you know what? You have a need. Let us pray for you. Can we guarantee that it's going to happen today? Only God can guarantee these things. But we can guarantee we will proclaim truth to you. You need healing, we will proclaim truth that by his stripes you are healed. If you need help, we will proclaim truth that God is able to help to the uttermost. Whatever your need is right now, you come. Our ministry team's here praying. We had folks this morning, they just start coming. Just start coming. You come as we sing. Today's the day. I need healing. I need help, Lord. Pass me not, O gentle Savior. Hear my humble cry. You come. Don't stand. You come. You know where you're at. You say, I prayed for this hundreds of times already. Pray 101 times. Pray until something happens. It's a push ministry. P-U-S-H. Pray until something happens. You come. You come. So others are coming. Let us pray for you. Let us pray for you. Maybe you want to stand in the stead of someone else, a loved one that just needs prayer. Let us pray for you. Let us pray for you.